Have you ever thought of the importance of good leadership? From presidents to governors, having good leaders is essential to the flourishing of people. We know this on a national scale. When we have a good president, everyone remembers them. People know Washington and Lincoln because of their stellar leadership of the nation during pivotal times of transition. When we have good leaders who are experienced at leading people and leading change, we see that people are affected by it in positive ways. We know this on a closer level, though, on a more intimate level, at our workplaces and in our homes. When we have good bosses and good managers, we know that it's, it's enjoyable to go to work. We know that when there is a good leadership at home, children flourish and are cared for well. We know that leadership is essential and that it's good. We know it especially when we have bad leadership. I'm sure many of us today have stories of that frightful boss or manager made work voracious and terrible. We know this often in the absence of good leadership. Or perhaps in your workplace when you've had a temporary boss or a temporary leader. We must know that, that leadership is good. But in our culture, leadership Leaders are often despised. They're often seen as authoritarian dictators. They're really not wanted. We're fine with leaders and leadership, well, so long as that leader doesn't tell us what to do or how to live. We're fine with a sort of head figure that kind of keeps things going, an administrator, if you will, Someone who's going to come and, and to lead means that he has to lead in a direction. He has to be going somewhere. He has to be taking us from point A to point B. Because all of this is to say that we know by experience that leadership is essential in our lives. Whether we sort of push against the idea of leadership because of an authoritarianism, we, we don't want authority in our lives, we recognize that leadership is essential when you have groups of people gathered together. There must be someone leading the way. And in 1 Samuel, we're going to see over the next few weeks why leadership is so essential for God's people. We're going to begin today walking through over the next several months this great book of 1 Samuel. I commend it, you, it to you to read it over the next uh, few months, to use it in your devotional time, to read and, and think about this book in the Old Testament written some 3,000 years ago. You may think, my goodness, what... What is there for us today? We're, we're New Testament Christians. Um, you know, what, what's the Old Testament? 
And I know many of us neglect the Old Testament. We get bogged down in the Old Testament. We struggle with the Old Testament. And I can guarantee you this morning, if you have your Bibles with you, if you were to look at your Bibles, there would be an evident neglect in the Old Testament. And it's seen on those pretty shiny edges in your Bible. You see, in the New Testament, I bet you those are more worn than the Old Testament. The pages are more wrinkled. In fact, I bet you even this morning, as we turn to 1 Samuel, there will be some sticking pages that have never been pulled apart. Friends, I want to be a good shepherd. And I believe that the whole counsel of God's Word is inspired by God and profitable for God's people. And 1 Samuel is rich with a word for us this day. And so before I begin, before I read, I just want to sort of set the stage, if you will, since we're beginning a new book um, and uh, may, may be unfamiliar with this period in, in Israel's history. This letter, this book was written uh, during a very difficult time in the nation of Israel. You'll be reminded that God formed the nation of Israel out of Abraham. He called Abraham. He says, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a big nation. I'm going to make you into a people. And he called Abram, and Abram had some sons, and, and those had, sons had sons. Well, uh, through the course of history, the sons of Abraham ended up down in Egypt. And they were flourishing down there as Joseph was leading them. But then Joseph died. We're told in, in the book of Exodus that the nation of Israel was enslaved for over 400 years and through the prophet Moses, God raised up a leader who would deliver God's people from their slavery. And he gave them the law, not as a means of salvation, but as a means to display his glory among the nations. And the nation of Israel was led in the wilderness to the promised land. And they were given this land, a land that was not their own. A land that they did not build, houses they didn't build, vineyards they didn't plant. And God gave it as a gift to them. And they were to go into the land and in, they were to kill all the people in the land as an act of God's judgment of their sinfulness, that is the sins of the Amalekites, the sins uh, of the people of the land. God was judging them through the nation of Israel, though the nation of Israel was just as wicked and just as sinful. And as the story goes on, we are told that the nation disobeys God. And truly, from, from the time of Mount Sinai, it is a spiraling effect for the nation of Israel. It's not a progress of growth of, of holiness, but rather a slow and steady decline into moral depravity. We see that through the, through the books of Joshua and Judges. If you've ever read Judges, you know that, that often that, that book drives you to weep at the utter depravity of humanity. God's own people, the people that were to display His glory among the nations, were the people who were taken in with sacrificing their children to Molech or giving themselves over to Asherah, the goddess of the land. In the book of Judges, we uh, are learn that there's no leader. And there's this constant refrain in the letter. People did what was, what was right in their own eyes because there was no king. Anarchy reigned among God's people. It was a littering together of some city-states. There was no unified nation. The people did whatever they wanted, however they wanted, whenever they wanted it. 
And they chose God when it was convenient. But God was faithful. And throughout that period of time, God would raise up men and women who would lead God's people back to faithfulness, back to His Word. Back to His Word. And these judges, like Samson, would be raised up to lead God's people back to following His Word. But even they failed. Which is where we arrive in 1 Samuel. Samuel being the last of the judges. Samuel being that final judge. But Samuel is different, as we'll see. The book of Samuel was originally two book or one book. First, our first Samuel and our second Samuel in the original Hebrew is, is one book. It's one story. When it was translated into the Greek Septuagint, it was divided into two books, into First Samuel and to Second Samuel, primarily because the Hebrew language doesn't have vowels, and when you begin to add vowels to words, things get a lot longer. And particularly because modern English readers can't read very long, uh, modern English Bibles keep them divided as well. And the story of, uh, of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel is the story about three men. It's the story of Samuel, it's the story of Saul, and it's the story of David. And one after another, we learn about these characters. And we are told about God's word. And his work among his people. Samuel, a godly man, a godly leader, a, a man after God's own word, a man of the word. And then later, in a few weeks, we'll be introduced to Saul, a man of the people, a man of the world, a king like the world. But then finally, towards the end of the, of the book, we'll come to the king, David. The one whom is described as a man after God's own hearts. Those are the characters we're going to think about. We're going to think about how God's character is reflected in them and how God wants us to see Him as the, as the supreme character in this story. Well, I'm going to begin reading in 1 Samuel in chapter 1, so I invite you to turn there in your Bibles on page 225 in the Pew Bibles before you. And I'd encourage you to leave that open as we consider God's word this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 1. There was a certain man of Rehathaim Zophim, the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jerohim, the son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penaniah. And Penaniah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peniah his wife and to her sons and daughters, but to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? 
After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me, and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. And she continued praying before the Lord. Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant you your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man named Elkanah and his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. When she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull and brought the child to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I have prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And Samuel worshiped the Lord there. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. 
He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be caught off from off in darkness, or not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Amen. Well, as we consider this, I've summarized all of that in this one way. God cares for his people. The point of 1 Samuel chapter 1 through chapter 2 and verse 10 is simply this. God cares for his people. So the purpose of our time today is to encourage Christians to trust in God. To see, to find ourselves in God, someone whom is trustworthy. Someone whom we can trust in. Someone who we can depend upon. Our passage shows us three ways that we demonstrate our trust in the Lord. I know it's so easy for us to say, I trust the Lord, I trust in Him, I trust Jesus, I trust, I trust. What does that look like? What does that look like in our daily lives together? Well, I think in this passage before us, we see three ways that we demonstrate our trust in the Lord. First, trust the Lord by turning to Him in trials. Trust the Lord by turning to Him in trials. Secondly, we'll see trust the Lord by giving Him everything. By giving Him everything. And third and finally, trust the Lord by resting in His unchanging character. Trust the Lord by resting in His unchanging character. In verses 1 through 20, in the story that I've just read, we see Hannah trusting the Lord by turning to Him in the midst of her trial. The story begins there in verses 1 through 2 with really insignificant people from a very obscure place. This is not a who's who of the Israelites. As I read off those names, probably not one of them rang a bell. They weren't the buzzwords of the Bible. Words like Judah and Bethlehem. There weren't words that we are often familiar with. Though one, an Ephrathite, he was from the lineage of Ephraim, from the tribe, from Joseph. We are told here that he was, notice, a certain man. Very humble declaration. There's just this guy in this hill country, this, this certain guy, a, a really a nobody no one, no one special, no one from a lineage that would have been praiseworthy. And what we are seeing here at the very beginning of this, of this book is really what this book is all about. Is that God will choose a leader for his people unlike the way the world chooses a leader. Here in this very opening line, we see a hint at what God will judge the nation for in choosing Saul over anyone else. You see, the, the people wanted important leaders. Someone who they could say, wow, look at my leader. He's somebody special. He's got the right pedigree, the right degrees, the right name. There used to be a time in our history where names, particularly our last names, were 
meaningful. Even today, in certain sectors of society, they still are. But there was a time in our own country where your last name determined who you were and what you would be. And here we see an obscure people, insignificant, nobody. It's to remind us that God never chooses leaders the way the world does. In the midst of this, we see Hannah. We see that refrain, that, that sort of hanging word there at the bottom of, of verse 2. But Hannah had no children. Throughout this, we see her pain made very evident and clear. She had no children. This was the source of her pain. She, God had not given her a child. But, but one thing I want you to just see in this as we think about trials is who brought this trial upon Hannah. Was it her husband, Elkanah? Was it Penaniah, her neighbor? No, no, no. We see very clearly in verse 5, but to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. We see Hannah's pain explained in the, in the reality that God was the one who had brought this pain into her life and God was the one who would relieve this pain. We see also here that her pain was perpetual. Her trial was ongoing. Three times in that section, in verses 3 through, through, not, through 8, we see year by year. Ongoing, perpetual pain. Reminded, tormented by Penaniah. Derided. We don't know what the motive was. We're not really told why she's doing that. Maybe she was just like the rest of the Israelites. She was wicked. Here she is provoking her. And one of the things we know very clearly from the Scriptures is the connection between God's blessing and having children. And so for perhaps there was this sort of God doesn't love you, God doesn't care for you language that Penn and I was using. We really don't know, but we see that her pain was perpetual. It was an ongoing thing. It was an ongoing reminder. It's one thing to know that you have failed. That you can't give your husband a child. Well, it's entirely something else to be reminded of that pain. Our own hearts remind us of these, these kind of painful experiences. And yet here we see a tempter brought in her way. More than that, we see that her, her pain is exacerbated. It, it's pressed in. It's not just that she derides her. We see here that she provokes her grievously to irritate her. And her goal in life was to make her irritated by the fact she had no child. But yet we see that refrain, but because the Lord had closed her womb. Even in the conversation we see, between Elkina and her, her pain, her pain is irrepressible. Her pain didn't just go away through some meditation and through not thinking about it. We see Elkina say, am I not more than, to you than ten sons? Am I not sufficient? 
No. No. And I know many this morning who gathered here perhaps have a history where you were unable to have children. You can relate with her pain, her sorrow, and her weeping. For you, it's very real. For you, you know exactly the kind of suffering she is in, the kind of hurt and pain that she's enduring, how hard life was for her. But in the midst of this story, in the midst of her pain, we see her hope. We see her faith. Look at verse 9 with me. And after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now, now in the English, it just seems as if this is a transitional kind of, you know, okay, she's done with dinner. She got up from dinner and left. Oh, but there's so much more here. We see an intentionality on Hannah's part. And thematically, what we're drawn in is to her actions. Where is she going? Where is she going? And what is she doing? In the sense that the narrator wants us to have our eyes up from the table, uh, from seeing the scene of Penaniah and Elkina and the rest of the family. There are all of these children, all of these sons gathered around having a great feast. They're, I mean, Hannah's weeping at the table while everybody's celebrating. And then Hannah gets up and our eyes are lifted and, and we're turned. Where is Hannah going? We see that Hannah, in the midst of her pain, in the midst of her sorrow, does what? She turns to the Lord. Hannah gets up from the table and she goes to the temple. She goes to the tabernacle. At this time in the nation of the history of the nation of Israel, the temple, which is the tabernacle, that tent that Moses built, is erected in Shiloh. Eventually under the leadership of David and then his son Solomon, there will be a temple built in Jerusalem where the Ark of the Covenant will be permanently placed. But here we see it is in Shiloh. And as she goes there to the temple, we, are, we see her prayer of faith. We're told that she vowed a vow that God, if you will remember me, if you will hear my prayer, and if you will answer this prayer, this is my only prayer, I want a son. Not not only that, if you give me a son, I will give him back to you. Hannah's prayer is radical in nature. How often do we pray, say, God, give me this so that I can give it back to you? God, answer this prayer so I can use this for your glory. See, what we see in Hannah's vow is the very nature of prayer. All prayer is meant, every gift that we get is meant to give back to God glory and praise. This is why churches historically have prayed together so that they can hear the prayers of the saints and then see among the people when prayers are answered. Not so they can, wow, look at that, it's amazing, prayer works. No, so that they can give glory to God who answers prayer. God works in such a way so that it is unmistakable that He and He alone can answer the prayer. And so Hannah turns to Him in prayer. And in the midst of this, we see Eli, poor Eli, he he was uh, not the greatest high priest ever in the nation of Israel. Um, We see he's confused about Hannah. Uh, He thinks he takes Hannah as a drunk woman, which 
again, just sort of gives you some historical context. If the high priest expects drunk people to be hanging out at the temple, he's not surprised by it. You can get a bit of a sense of uh, what life was like in Israel, right? It would be like us coming and gathering together for church and just not being surprised when we see just a bunch of drunks hanging around the church. Eli was not surprised by this drunken woman, but tells her to sober up. Hannah saying, hey, listen, I am not a worthless woman. And that resounding word there, if you look, you just find it in your Bible, there, it says, oh, do not, in verse 16, do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. This here is, is really building off what we're going to find next week with Eli's sons, Hophni and Phineas, who were worthless men. That is to say that the temple was notorious for worthless people and not faithful people. And what we see here in the story is Hannah rising above the rest as someone who is faithful to the Lord, even when the rest are not. Even in Elkanah's own family, we see in their behavior in the story, they're going up to the temple year by year. They don't neglect the obedience to the law. Well, if you've ever read the book of Judges, you know that that's just simply not the story uh, of the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel had long neglected the word of God. They had long neglected the law. But here we find this obscure family from a really insignificant place being faithful to the Lord. We're told then in verses 19 through 20 that Hannah's prayer is answered. That the Lord is able. That the one who closed the womb is the one who opens the womb. Hannah turns to the right place. She goes to the right person who can deal with her problems. And the question for us in the midst of this is, what trials are you currently facing and have you turned to the Lord in them? We see in Hannah's character here a, a great character to follow. Hannah turns to the Lord. She is real with her pain. She doesn't hide her pain. She doesn't hide her, her, her weeping. But she goes to the Lord. She goes to the one whom can deal with her problems. And the question is, when you say you trust the Lord, are you turning to Him in prayer? Are you giving yourself to pray that, God, you can answer my prayers for your glory? And so we see in the midst of trial, Hannah turns and trusts in the Lord. She turns to depend upon him. This is similar to the Apostle Paul. When he was in the midst of pain, he turned to the Lord in prayer. But in the midst of that, God did not answer his prayer. But rather said, my grace is sufficient for my power is made perfect in weakness. So we don't pray to God as if he is a genie in heaven. If he's just someone that if we rub him the right way, if we do the right things, then he will answer our prayers. Rather, prayer is dependence upon God. Prayer is saying, you know what, I can't figure this out and I can't do this apart from you. If you don't do something, I'm undone. And so we demonstrate our trust in the Lord in the midst of trials by turning to him in prayer. By depending upon him in that way. And for that, I just wonder, is that evident in your life? Is, is that your first reaction? Well, we must continue. And we must see that we demonstrate trust in the Lord by turning to him. 
even when it's hard. Secondly, we see here in verses 21 through 28 that we are to trust the Lord by giving him everything. Now remember, Hannah vowed that if you give me a child, I will give him to you. If you give me this child, I will turn him over to you and no razor shall touch his head. In other words, he will be, he will, he will be a Leverite. He will be a Levi. He, he will be a priest to you. He will serve in your temple in whatever way that you want him to serve. And Hannah vowed here. In verses 21 through 23, we see that Hannah's vow is remembered. The vow is recalled for us, called back to our mind. But we see here Hannah's joy. She's got a new baby whom she is weaning, whom she is feeding and caring for. She is finding her prayers answered. You should imagine what that was like for her as she cared for that newborn child, this one whom she had so long for year after year prayed, God give me a son, and finally the son has arrived. What joy that must have been to, to have him day in and day in, to care for him, to love on him, and to, to feed him. If you're a mother, I know with my own wife and the, those periods when childs are being weaned and cared for, there's, a, there's an attachment there. Children are attached to their mothers through this process of weaning them caring for them and feeding to them. They know where to go for food. They know where to be provided for and cared for and where they are safest. Many say that it's at a mother's breast that a child is the safest and feels the most comfortable. And we see in the sense of that, not only safety for Hannah, but also for Samuel. But we know that this joy if seen only from a worldly perspective, is fleeting. If Hannah is going to be faithful to the Lord, if she's truly going to trust the Lord, then she's got to come through on her word. She has to give him to the Lord. And that's what we see in verses 24 through 28. We see that Hannah lends Samuel to the Lord, that she keeps her vow he says this, I have lent him to the Lord as long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. Now any mother in her sane mind this morning, and even any father, can hardly imagine this scene. I've already told you what life was like around the temple. It wasn't pristine and it was not pretty. Hophni and Phineas had turned it into a prostitution ring. For which drunken women were hanging around 24-7. So much so that Eli is not surprised by it. And this is the place where Samuel is going to live. This is the place where Hannah is going to turn her son over. The kind of condition she's going Well, what is she thinking? Who in their right mind would give a child to Eli? His own two sons are a mess. But yet we see something of Hannah's faith, don't we? A faith that's probably unimaginable to you this morning. That she would actually give her child to God. That she would give him away. That she would send him away. Now we are told in the story that she does visit him occasionally. But that's not the same as having a child in your home. 
Yet she lends him to the Lord and demonstrates great faith. And the point for us this morning is that we are to trust God by giving him everything. But we know also that God's character is not only to call us to give everything, but that he demonstrates in his own character that he gives us everything. God gave us everything when he gave us his son. We see demonstrated in here in Hannah a reflection of God's own character, what he will do some thousand years later when he gives his own son for our sins. This, brothers and sisters, is the foundation of our trust in him. We can depend upon God because God does not ask us to do anything that he has not already done. As Paul writes, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? You can trust God by giving him everything because he has given everything in Christ. And the question for you this morning is, are you trusting God? Is there some part of your life for which you're saying, you know, this is mine? Some sin that you're, you're keeping for yourself? Are you giving everything to God? The gospel, the Christian gospel, is a gospel of coming and giving everything to God. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, what do you have to do? Well, you have to deny yourself. You have to take up your cross and you have to follow me. Self-denial is at the heart of what it means to follow Jesus. We see it displayed here in Hannah. Hannah Denies herself. She denies what is natural in her body to love that child, to care for that child, to see that child grow. But she is faithful to the Lord and gives him away. And so we demonstrate our trust in the Lord by giving him everything, even if it hurts. Even if it hurts. Well, third and finally here, and very quickly, though, I wish we had more time. Trust the Lord by resting in his unchanging character. We see in Hannah's prayer at the final, this, this prayer of rejoicing. And, and friends, if you have nothing to do today, uh, perhaps you could meditate just on this prayer and God's character. In this, we see three aspects of God's character summarized in verses 1 through 2. The incomparable God. God is incomparable with anyone else. Hannah is drawing our eyes up from the gods of this world and causing us to delight in Him. To find our greatest joy and satisfaction in God alone. Look at what she says. My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Hannah is able to give Samuel to the Lord because her greatest joy was not the things of this world, but the Lord. Her greatest satisfaction, her greatest delight was seeing the Lord satisfied, to being satisfied in Him and to Him alone. This is what is so encapsulated in the Westminster Confession of Faith. What is the chief end of man? But to give Him glory and enjoy Him forever. And so we find our joy and delight in Him, a God who is incomparable. But we see in verse 2 also a God who is unlike any other God. There is none holy like the Lord. Not one. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. The God of Israel, God 
Our God is a God who is a rock, who's a firm foundation, a God who doesn't change. Rocks don't move. They're immovable. God is unchanging. And we see then in verses 3 through 8, very quickly, the transforming God. We see that God transforms people. He takes what is low and brings it high. He takes what is rich and He makes it poor. We see the work of God here. We see that the knowledge of God answers arrogance. Here she directs her prayer towards Penaniah. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. In other words, stop trying to be God, Penaniah. God will be God. And God will give children, and He will take away children for His own glory. And we see throughout this several things just to point out. We can see uh, in verse 5 the transformation. Those who were full, that is the rich, have become poor. That is, they are now without bread. And those who are hungry uh, don't cease to hunger anymore. That God provides for both. God takes away and He gives. The barren has borne seven, that is Hannah. And then we see those who had many children, Penaniah is forlorn. She's without children, without legacy. And throughout this we see that God is the one who acts. God is the one who turns the world upside down. And finally, God is the one who creates life and who takes life away. We see that God is sovereign over every human life. Friends, all of this great thinking about God, all of this about God is what we're resting in. If we believe this is true about God, we can depend upon Him. And finally, we see the third sort of aspect in verses 9 through 10 is the victorious God. God will have victory over His enemies. God will not be defeated. He will guard the feet of His faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. And that line right there, not by might shall a man prevail, you will find resounding throughout this letter. As Saul tries to defeat God's enemies, as the nation of Israel tries to defeat their enemies by sheer might, and a little boy comes along, he says these words, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. In other words, David will cry, Who are you to come against the armies of the living God? God is sovereign over the nation. God is the true king. And friends, we find our trust in his unchanging character. We rest in the fact that God does not change By knowing the Lord, we come to find true peace and true happiness and joy. And so I just encourage you this morning to think about this, to trust in the Lord by turning to Him, to trust in the Lord by giving Him everything, and to trust in the Lord by resting in His unchanging character because God cares for you. Now as you consider this story, as you think about what is happening here, you have a barren woman giving birth to a son who will anoint the king. See, God works in similar ways throughout His great story. For one day there will come another 
barren lady. Her name will be Elizabeth. And Elizabeth will be barren and not have any children. But God will promise that that Elizabeth will have a son. His name will be John. And John will be a forerunner to another king. And he will anoint him. What we see here in this great story is how God is going to redeem his people. Hannah and Elizabeth gave birth to the forerunners of kings. The king who will save his people from their sins. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we pray that your name is glorified, that your name is great in our lives. Lord, may we turn and trust you and you alone. Father, may we rest in your unchanging character. Your glory, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.